Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Hear the word of the Lord. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Periodically, I have something of a crisis. Not too serious, but it happens two, three, four times a year. And that's when I have to decide what the next series will be. Now, I have friends who plan out their series years ahead. I've never been able to do that. And I know there are others who just come each week and try to figure out what they're going to preach. But as you know, here, we tend to go through books of the Bible. And so I asked myself, what's the next book we should study? And I chose Malachi. Now, you might say, why Malachi? And there are a number of reasons for that. The first one is this. And this is a sufficient reason, by the way. This could be the only reason. It's in the Bible. And because it's in the Bible, it's worth preaching. I could have simply taken the index of the Bible and closed my eyes and put a, my finger down somewhere, and that would have been an excellent book to preach. It's in the Bible. It's God's Word. It's for God's people. Another reason is because it's in the Old Testament, and we have been lately in the New Testament. We were in a longish series in John, and then a summer series in Acts. And so I thought it was time to get back to another kind of literature in the Old Testament. But with Malachi, we have something of an ease of entrance into the Old Testament, and that's another reason for this book, because it's something like a hinge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's something like an off-ramp from the Old Testament and an on-ramp into the New Testament. And appropriately, uh, it it is located at the end of our arrangement of the Old Testament. And the other reason is this. Malachi has a message that is a a constantly, perpetually relevant warning to the people of God. Why? It is addressed to the boredom, the indifference, the immorality, the selfishness, the unfaithfulness of the beloved people of God. Now, I am not saying that that describes us, but it might. And I say it might because those who are like this are the last ones to realize it. If you would have gone to the people of God in Malachi's time and said, are you bored, indifferent, unfaithful, uh, immoral, and so on, they would have said, oh, no, 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 no. No, we're, we're doing well. And so... If we resemble them in any ways, this is a message for us. And if we are not like this, Malachi helps us never to be like this. Because it's a warning 
not to be like this. Now, Malachi is set up in a series of six disputations or arguments between God and His people. And we're going to look at the the first dispute today. And it goes like this. God makes a declaration. The people say, oh yeah? And they challenge God. And then God responds patiently to their challenge to back up His his declaration. And then there is a a response, a, a result. And we'll see that structure here. But before we get to the dispute... We have the first verse, which is the, the title of this whole book. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. This word oracle sometimes is translated the burden. This is a burden that, that God has given to Malachi to, to entrust to the people of God. And I want you to notice a couple things in this, this uh, title. Three things that are interesting here. One... When you find in our English translations the word LORD, L-O-R-D, with all capital letters, that is the convention that many translations use to translate the personal name of God. Not the title of God, but the personal name of God, which we don't really know how to pronounce exactly, but Yahweh is what we often say. And this is His personal name by which He revealed Himself. And so, it's not... Uh, a message from from God Almighty. It's a message from the Lord, who is giving His personal name. And of course, the Lord is the God Almighty, but but He's introducing Himself here in His personal relationship with His people. And notice also that it is addressed to Malachi. Now, there is some debate here about whether this is a real person's name or this is simply a title, because Malachi means my messenger, or my angel. But I think it is probably a personal name. Some people dispute that because they say there's no other example of this name in the Old Testament. Well, so? He might have had uh, the only one who's named this in the Old Testament. That's okay. And this goes with the convention of how prophets are introduced. So it seems to me that this is his personal name, and he has the advantage, as a prophet, of being called my messenger, or my angel. And then notice to whom this is addressed. It is addressed to Israel. To Israel. Now, um, Israel, let's, let's quickly review this name Israel. Israel was the name that was given to Jacob. So let's go back. We have Abraham, whom God called out of Mesopotamia. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had this experience. He took advantage of his brother Esau a couple of times. He ran away, came back, and he had this experience with God where he had this nocturnal wrestling with God. And after, after this wrestling match with God, God blessed him. It's, it's an unusual text for sure, but it's in Genesis chapter 32. And then he says, your name will be called Israel, the one who wrestles with God. So that's where that name comes from. It belonged to the person Jacob. But then, Israel, that name was transferred to the nation that grew out of the descendants of Jacob. They became the nation of Israel. And then, there was a split after King David and then Solomon, Solomon's son, Rehoboam. There was a split in the twelve tribes of Israel. Ten tribes in the north 
and two tribes in the south. And the ten tribes in the south retained the name Israel, and the two tribes in the south, did I say that right? The, two, the ten tribes in the north, in the north, retained the name Israel, and the two tribes in the south retained or, or continued with the name Judah. So, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. But then, 722 B.C., the superpower Assyria comes and wipes out the ten tribes in the north, sends them into exile, brings in other peoples, mixes them up, and so Israel, those ten tribes, disappear, never reconstituted again. And so all we have are these two tribes with some remnant from the other ten tribes that continue on. But Israel, as the northern tribes, is gone. Then, 586 B.C., Babylon, the new superpower, comes and sacks Judah and Jerusalem, takes them into exile for 70 years, and then some of them come back, because in 539 B.C., the next superpower, which was Persia, the king of Persia, Cyrus, says, you can go back, and I will even support your going back to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. And now here we are. We are back in the land for... 50s, 460s before Christ. And this is addressed to these people. Now, this people is a small remnant composed of part of two tribes with some Levites mixed in and maybe a few from the other tribes. They are poor. They are uh, surrounded by enemies. They are a small province of Persia. And that was all that was left of Israel. And so the fact that this, this message is directed to Israel actually gives them much more than they felt like. It gives them that, that honored name of the nation of Israel to these few and demoralized and poor and dominated people. And so this is addressed to Israel Even though this is all that was left of Israel, this is still Israel. And God, the Lord, the personal God, is still in interaction and still communicating with what is left of His people. And He calls them by that beloved name, Israel. Now that is the title. They bore a name that was much greater than their current circumstances. And by the way, in the rest of this, we, ha- we find them called Judah, we find them called Jacob, we find them called the descendants of Jacob. So they're given all these titles, and they're bearing titles that are much greater than their current circumstances. And that sets up the problematic of this whole book. They are Israel, but they sure don't look like it. They sure don't feel like it. And God is Yahweh, the covenant God, the one who keeps His promises. But it sure doesn't feel like that to the people. And so we have the first conversation beginning in verse 2. And the Lord begins this conversation with a straightforward declaration of His love for Israel. What a marvelous way to start a conversation. I have loved you, says Yahweh, says the Lord. And this could be translated either as this like perfect tense, I have loved you, or it could be a present tense a translation that would work well as well here saying, I do love you. The first thing he says, I love you, Israel. Now, we might think that this is an excellent way to start a conversation. 
I think most of us would be pleased with that sort of a, a conversation starter, wouldn't we? Just the, the first thing out of somebody else's mouth, I love you. But the people weren't hearing that. They shot back. And they said, oh yeah? How have you loved us? Or in what way are you loving us? You, you say that you love us, but we're just not feeling it. How have you loved us? And we can be sympathetic to the people, can't we? This is, this is how we feel, don't we? If somebody comes and stabs us in the back, gossips behind us, takes advantage of us, and then they come and they profess love to us, we're not having it, are we? And that's kind of how the people felt here. They felt like they had been let down by God, even perhaps betrayed by God. And so they wanted some evidence. We can imagine the Jews thinking, you say you love us, but here we are. We're few in number, we're poor, we're surrounded by enemies, we're dominated by a foreign power, we're worshipping in a temple that is a pitiful replacement of the Temple of Solomon, we have no king of our own, and the promised Messiah is nowhere in sight. And you come, and you say, you love us. And now we have the demonstration of that. In verses 2 to 4, the Lord responded with a question. He's being very patient, isn't he? He responds with a question. He says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? And of course they would say, Yes. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Of course. And then he says, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So he declared his love for Jacob and his hatred for Esau. Now, We ought not to soften these words, as some translators do, because they find these unpalatable to hear of God loving some and hating others. But while we shouldn't soften these, we also need to interpret them not in petty human terms. Because when humans say, I hate you, it's often because of some sort of petty pique, or sometimes it's because of a a grave offense. But for God to love is to choose and accept and favor. And for God to hate is to reject and to disfavor. Now, this this statement shows that God is free to choose and to favor whomever He wishes. And He is free not to choose and to disfavor whomever He does not wish to. And that it is not based on human merit, but it is based on God's choice. Our New Testament reading from chapter 9 of Romans, we already read, but I just want to point out where Paul picks up this text from Malachi, and he makes this point. In chapter 9, uh, verse 10, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, referring to Jacob and Esau, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who called, she was told the older will serve the younger. Against all convention, the older would serve the younger. And then he quotes Malachi, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this shows that um, God is free to choose whomever He wants, to favor whomever He wants, and we ought, to, we ought to remember something here. 
as we look at this, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, that this statement really is shocking. It really is shocking. And we really should be kind of bothered by this statement. But not the second part of it, but the first part of it. Jacob, I loved? What? Read about Jacob, my friends, and, and see how, how odd that is, that God would love somebody like Jacob. As we read what the, the Bible tells us about Jacob, it's shocking that God would love Jacob. His own name means something like conniving. And he took advantage of his brother twice and stole his brother's birthright and stole his brother's blessing. This Jacob, God, you love him? Now that's offensive. And if we're going to be offended about the lack of fairness here, then we should probably be offended by the first part of this statement, that God would love Jacob. But then when we reflect a little longer on that, we should be very happy that God loved a person like Jacob. Because that opens the possibility that God could place His love on people like us as well. If, if God loved Jacob, then God could love somebody like me as well. And that's what should make us surprised, and that's what should marvel us about this declaration. You see, we tend to, especially here in the West, we tend to think God is obligated to love everybody in the same way. Because that's what's fair. That's what we think. But we ought to step back and say to ourselves, do you really want what's fair? Is that, is that what you want from God? Do you want what's fair? Do you want what's coming to you? Do you want what's just? Do you want what's right? Oh, my friend, don't be foolish. Don't ask for fairness from God. Ask for mercy. Ask for grace. Ask for favor. Ask for love. That's the, that's the marvelous thing about this statement. Jacob, I loved. And he can love us as well. It's not fair. It's so much better than fair. It's downright gracious. It's loving. It's merciful. It's kind. That's what we find here. And then he goes on and says, the way he argues is this. You think your situation's bad, and God recognized that it was. But he said, look at, look at your cousins. Look at the Edomites, who are the descendants of Esau. What's their situation like? And by the way, there was a blood feud all the way from Jacob and Esau and their descendant nations, Israel was always fighting with the, the Edomites. The Edomites always fighting with, with the, the Israelites. There was this, this feud that went on and on and on. And do you remember what happened? 586 B.C., Jerusalem gets sacked. And we find out from the, the prophecy of Obadiah, we find out that what Edom was doing, what the, the, the descendants of Esau were doing, well, their cousins, the the uh, Israelites were getting sacked. They were saying, ha, ha, ha. And they were in some way cheering the, the Babylonians on and participating in the plunder. That's what the cousins were doing. And so 
the Jews are sent into exile, the, the Edomites are able to stay more or less in their own territory. But something happened. We don't know what. There are different ideas about what it was that decimated Edom, decimated the, the, the descendants of Esau. But, but he says, look around. Look around. You, you, you're troubled because of your situation, but, but look around. Look at your cousins, the, the Edomites. In verse 2, is not Esau Jacob's brother declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. That's the situation in which the, the Edomites were. And then not only that, if Edom says, verse 4, if Edom says, we're shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now let me ask you something. How many of you have ever met a Jewish person? Everybody, right? How many of you have ever met an Edomite? No one. They're gone. They disappeared. They got swept into the other nations. As a nation, they're completely gone. So God is saying to the Jews, you think your situation is bad, and yes, I recognize that it is. It's not all I have for you, but bear with me and I'll tell you what I have for you. But just look for now. If you don't think I love you, just compare yourselves to the Edomites. Compare yourselves to Esau. I have a friend who loves to quote this proverb. He says, I was, I was sad because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. And that's something like the argument here. But actually that sells this argument short. Because it's actually quite normal for humans to have Two feet. And so, if somebody doesn't have two feet, that is, that is a, a tragic abnormality that's out of the norm uh, of what's normal. Uh, but here, the, the fact that God had chosen Israel, that was not normal. So it's not like they were just trying to, to, to understand what was normal and they had fallen into something that was abnormal. Their situation was abnormal. They were the ones who were beloved above all the other nations. And His faithfulness to them through centuries was extraordinary and unique. No other nation on earth. And so, what's the response? The response, God says to them in verse 5, you'll see this. You will get this. You will understand this. Verse 5, your own eyes shall see this. Now, they had seen it all, hadn't they? They'd seen it, but they hadn't seen it. And he's saying, but you will see it now. You will understand what I'm saying to you. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now this, beyond the border of Israel, could be translated that way, but I think I prefer the other translation, which is, over the land of Israel. If the proper translation is beyond the border of Israel, he's saying, that God is great in Edom as well and in other nations. But I think the point in this context is God is great over Israel. And even though Israel is this tiny remnant that is in this little bitty territory and oppressed by all its enemies, God is great over Israel. Nothing has changed here. God is great over Israel. And one day you will see it. And one day you will say it. And you will declare it as well. Now, what is the takeaway here? The argument, this declaration, 
of God's proven love for His people, His election of His people, that was to anchor them for tough times. And they had gone through tough times, and we don't minimize the tough times the the Jews had experienced by no means, and God wasn't minimizing it either, but He was saying, I'm giving you an anchor, I'm giving you a key by which you can interpret your present situation. And unless you have memory of, of the past, you will misinterpret your current situation. And unless you're able to look around, to, to look a, away from yourself and look around at other peoples around you, you will misinterpret your situation. If you just look at yourselves, you will have no guideline, you will have no rule or no measure by which to judge your own situation. So I remind you of my choice of you. I remind you of my faithfulness to you. And I ask you to look around to see the evidence that I still love you and that I am still faithful to you and I am still for you and I will still fulfill my promises to you. That's the message to Israel, and that is a message for us as well. But we have an even better argument. Not that it's a better argument, but it's it's fuller. Because what God has done in the fullness of time, it's actually the same argument. It's the same argument. In, in this life, we will go through difficulties. You You may be going through difficulties right now, or maybe you're in a smooth... Happy patch. But you've come through some difficult patches and there will be more difficult patches in the future. Perhaps more difficult than you can ever imagine. Our church will go through difficult times as well. The people of God in the world will go through difficult times. We know that. It's, it's assured. We're told that that will take place. Then how will we handle that? Without putting our hands on our hips and saying, God, is this how you treat your people? Is this what you do for us? And if I'm your daughter, if I'm your son, is this how you treat your children? And then we have the message in the New Testament that reminds us to look not back to Jacob and Esau, but to look to Jesus and to look to the cross as the anchor for our souls, as the, as the key to understanding God's posture towards us. Do you know what God's posture towards you is? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, He is for you, and all the promises of God are, are yours and will be completed in your life. And what is God's posture toward His church? It's the same He is for us. He will bless us. He will prosper us. He will give us all that we need and He will make us a glory. He will share with us His own glory. How do we know that? He's promised us. And with what has He sealed that? He's sealed that with the blood of His own Son. Do you want to know what God thinks about you? Look at Jesus. Look at the cross. And especially when you're going through a hard time, when you're going through that hard time of, of loss and suffering and discouragement and depression, look at the cross. That's the answer. That's the message. I have loved you, says the Lord. And we say, how have you loved us? And the answer comes back, I have loved you by sending my own son. And my own son gave his life for all who will trust in him to give eternal life forgiveness, and an inheritance with all of God's people forever. How have you loved us? Look at Jesus. That's the answer to the question. He's loved us by giving us Jesus. Let's pray. Our God, 
This is a shocking text. Shocking that you would love people like us. We would expect you to love the lovely. We would expect you to be kind to the kind. We would expect you to be favorable to those who are favorable. But it's amazing that you would be kind to the unkind, favor to those who deserve disfavor, loving to those who are not lovely. Oh God, we thank You once again for this reminder of Your eternal love for Your people. And Father, we don't know what's coming in the future, but we know that all we need to do is keep living in order to find rough patches of suffering in our lives. And we don't know what's coming upon Your church in the future, but we know there will be suffering and persecution. And we pray, O God, that You would enable us to hear Your words to us, I love You, and to look to Jesus and to find that it is always true. And we pray this in His name. Amen.